welcome to episode 69 of the Energy Balance Podcast, where we teach you how to live without constant hunger and cravings, fatigue, brain fog, poor sleep, and other low energy symptoms by maximizing your cellular energy. I'm Jay Feldman. I'm a health coach and independent health researcher. And joining me again today is my good friend, Mike Fave. Mike and I have been studying health and nutrition together for a long time now. And Mike also draws on his experiences from working within the healthcare industry. Today's episode is part seven of our series discussing non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. And in today's episode, we'll be talking about carbohydrate deficiencies, saturated fat intake, and the best diet for fatty liver disease. And as we've discussed throughout this series, the recommendations that we're making here, while some of them are very specific to fatty liver disease, most of them pertain to virtually any other chronic health issue related to a lack of energy or an energy failure. And so this information is extremely important, uh, whether you're trying to reverse fatty liver disease or any other chronic health issue. And as far as those earlier episodes in the series go, we did take some time to discuss a lot of the general mechanisms and physiology underlying fatty liver disease. So if you haven't checked those episodes out, I'd highly recommend you go back and do that. And if you are new to this podcast, then after listening through today's episode, I'd recommend going back and checking out episodes one through seven of the podcast, where we took some time to build a foundation as far as the bioenergetic view of health goes. And in today's episode in particular, we'll be talking about how carbohydrate deficiencies can drive fatty liver disease. We'll be talking about the particular type of fat that you'll want to avoid if you have fatty liver disease, and you might be surprised about which type of fat this is. We'll also be discussing the optimal amount of protein, fat, and carbohydrates for reversing fatty liver disease. We'll be talking about the order of dietary adjustments to make for fatty liver disease and why this order matters. And we'll be talking about whether reducing fructose intake is necessary for treating or reversing fatty liver disease. To check out the show notes for today's episode, head over to jfeldmanwellness.com podcast, where you can take a look at the studies and articles and anything else that we reference throughout today's episode. And if you're dealing with any of these symptoms or chronic health issues we've been discussing throughout the series, whether that is fatty liver or insulin resistance or other related conditions like diabetes or heart disease, or if you're dealing with any other low energy symptoms, whether that's chronic cravings and hunger, low energy or fatigue, chronic pain or joint pain, weight gain, uh, digestive symptoms like bloating or inflammation, brain fog, poor sleep, uh, hormonal imbalances, or any other low energy symptoms or chronic health issues or conditions, then head over to jfeldmanwellness.com energy, where you can sign up for a free energy balance mini course, where I'll explain how these different symptoms and conditions are really caused by a lack of energy. And I'll also walk you through the main things that you can do from a diet and lifestyle perspective to maximize your cellular energy and resolve these symptoms and conditions. So to sign up for that free energy balance mini course, head over to jfeldmanwellness.com energy. And with that, let's get started. All right, so up until now, we've talked about all these different mechanisms that are driving this pathology that we see in fatty liver disease and, and the progression throughout fatty liver disease. And obviously, there are a lot of factors in our environment that can cause those things. We talked about a lot of those underlying causes and how those drive the those different mechanisms in that pathology. So now let's talk about what we can do from a diet, lifestyle, supplement perspective to uh, prevent or reverse this pathology 
especially in the case that somebody has fatty liver. But of course, as we've talked about, uh, this pathology is seen in virtually every other chronic health issue. So a lot of this information would apply to virtually any other uh, condition or, or issue, but we'll uh, we'll try to keep it a little more focused on fatty liver, especially when we talk about supplements that are, again, particularly helpful here. But as we'll get to, all of these supplements and strategies can be pretty helpful for any for any issue like they're they're working on this on this bigger picture level so it it applies to virtually everything uh but with that in mind let's start with the diet side of things so one thing that we've discussed a little bit throughout is the role of protein and particular amino acids in fatty liver and these for the most part are really uh important for the exportation of fat from the liver and so we talked about methionine very being very important there where if you have a methionine deficient diet or if you give a a random methionine deficient diet it will uh, substantially inhibit the ability to export fats from the liver and that can cause an accumulation of fat in the liver so with that in mind making sure to get enough methionine is is an important factor to consider and methionine is found in virtually every Uh, animal protein you're going to have a decent amount of methionine whether it's meat or dairy or seafood and it's not hard to get enough methionine if you're eating a decent amount of protein we've talked about this in the past of maybe about 0.6 to 0.8 grams per pound of body weight being a good range for general protein intake and if you're getting that and if most of it is from animal sources which again we've talked in the past why you don't want to be getting plant-based proteins Uh, that's the whole other conversation so we won't go into it now but so assuming you're getting a lot of animal-based protein, then it's almost impossible not to be getting enough methionine. It should be pretty easy. And when we talk supplementation, for example, this is not something you typically need to be concerned about. Uh, at least I would I would say that most people can easily get enough methionine. But one thing that can be tougher to get if you're not intentional about it is getting enough glycine. And we haven't talked about glycine as much in terms of fatty liver but glycine is, is for one, important for having enough methionine. It helps with the recycling of methionine. And it also has some of its own unique effects, its own unique anti-inflammatory effects, uh, its own unique effects on protecting against oxidative stress. And so with that in mind, getting enough glycine is, is also extremely important. And it's been found that in the same way that having enough glycine opposes the some of the harmful effects of methionine, which is worth mentioning that you see excess methionine being an issue, uh, big picture, especially in terms of things like longevity and aging. So you don't want to be getting too much methionine, but as we've mentioned before, if you get enough glycine, it is able to counteract those effects of too much methionine, more or less. And interestingly, it's also able to counteract the effects of too little methionine, where uh, in rats where they're trying to create a fatty liver situation and they deplete or they uh, feed a depleted diet uh, a diet depleted in methionine glycine is actually able to protect those rats against developing fatty liver so with that in mind getting enough glycine is very important and glycine is found in the connective tissue pieces of meat so that would be the bone and other like cartilage and tendons and things so again this isn't difficult to get but you just have to make it you know make a point to get it because you're not going to be finding it in things like chicken breast or steaks for the most part uh, instead, you'd want to opt for a lot of the meats that you would have to slow cook because they tend to be very tough. 
because of this connective tissue. But if you cook them low and slow, they, they become very tender. So this would be your roasts, anything with a bone, like short ribs or any sort of ribs or shanks like lamb shanks, beef shanks. Uh, those are all going to be very high in glycine and, and other protective amino acids. And uh, as well as just anything with bones, like you can make a, a bone broth. You could also use a collagen or gelatin protein powder. And that would be, those would be some easy ways to satisfy, in this case, both your methionine needs and glycine needs. Yeah, I would say the easiest way is to just get your lean, at least the easiest way in my experience and from what I've seen working with people is the easiest way to do is eat your lean protein sources, um, like your steaks, your chicken, eggs, uh, have your dairy. And then for a lot of people, it's just mixing some collagen hydrolysate into a smoothie or into some juice. And then maybe yeah. once in a while making like a roast or a, some type of um, like slow cooked meat. So that I would say that's the easiest intervention. Um, the next piece to talk about would be some of the other amino acids besides glycine and methionine. And those would be your branch chain amino acids. That's leucine, valine, and isoleucine. Now we have a study, I think it was in rats as well, where basically they showed that having branch chain amino acids helped to decrease fatty liver. They weren't sure of the specific mechanism, but with some of the states of fatty liver and some of the beneficial effects of, and, and, and that's for branch chain amino acids. There's also other amino acids like cysteine and uh, glycine was important here, but also glutamate are also are the the basic building blocks of the uh, antioxidant glutathione. So having enough of those can have an antioxidant effect as well as the branch chain fatty acids having effect on decreasing liver fat. So just getting enough amino acids and enough protein in general is extremely important for liver health mm -hmm. uh, for those reasons. And then also that a lot of these amino acids function in some of the liver detoxification pathways. So that, that would be like your phase, I would say, I think your phase two detoxification so it's important to make sure that you're having enough protein in general to support the liver detox, to support glutathione, perox, uh, glutathione production, to support um, anabolic processes within the liver, and then to support some of the methylation through methionine, and then also the function of methionine in producing, chol in producing choline, which is another nutrient, I guess. We want to talk about that, I guess, more in a supplement area, but methionine and choline are, are intimately linked. Uh, I don't know if you want, do you want me to cover it now since they're so linked or do you want to save that when we get into supplements? No, that's fine. I mean, of course we can get choline from diet as well. Uh, yeah. so it's fine to mention it now. I mean, you'll find choline in liver and eggs. Those are the two main sources. They're pretty yep. high in choline. And shrimp is pretty good source too. Mm -hmm. You're eating a decent amount of shrimp. Those are probably the, the easiest places to get it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and we talked about again, the, the importance there of choline for the liver export uh, and and being needed for that phosphatidylcholine piece that's needed in the, the VLDL. So if you don't have enough choline, if you're choline deficient, then ideally getting it from the liver eggs shrimp sources would be the best. But yeah, we'll talk about supplementing and the specific types of supplements in a, in a little bit. Yeah. So the methionine, methionine and choline kind of go together and then the branch chain amino acids have their own beneficial effect. And then mm -hmm. the glycine has its own beneficial effect as far as protecting against methionine and choline deficiency. Um, it also helps with bile acid conjugation, antioxidant, anti-inflammatory. Um, and then the other ones would be your glutamate, cysteine, and the glycine, again, 
which help with glutathione production. And I don't know, do you want to touch on taurine really quick while we're in protein, or do you want to go leave that towards supplements? It's kind of in that, that category and you can get it from some of your foods if, if you want to. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it is tough to get, to really focus on taurine and food. Uh, you're not fine. There's not too many foods that are real high in, in taurine. It's just selfish pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and so taurine is one, so you, you've kind of alluded to these amino acids that help with the liver detox. And a lot of those are the sulfur containing amino acids. So that's the methionine, mm-hmm. the cysteine, taurine. And, and so those are all supportive in that liver detox. So we mentioned the methionine, you mentioned cysteine. Again, these are all really easy to be getting enough of from your diet if you're getting enough animal protein. Uh, and yeah, taurine is one of those two. That's one that typically, if you're in this case, uh, look towards supplementation. But yeah, getting enough in the diet is definitely helpful as well. Yeah. And just for sources, that could be like um, scallops or mussels or oysters or clams. Those are kind of, those are going to be the best sources overall. But in general, I mean, you can get a little bit from meat, but it's not the same as taking a supplement. So we can kind of leave that more towards the supplement area. Just the overall picture here is that protein is important. And especially from animal sources, because of all these, I mean, these amino acids and um, we, we talked about in other episodes of plant stuff, so I won't cover plant proteins and why we don't specifically rely on those, but hitting that 0.6 to 0.8 grams per pound of protein per day is very important. I would even shoot for the, that 0.8 grams per pound. If you're having any type of liver issues on the higher end, just because as we're going to talk about in the next, some of the modifications with, um, with carbs and fats, you may want to just have a higher protein content for, for a period of time. And the easiest way to meet that is, you know, your lean meats, your dairy, your eggs, organ meats, shellfish, seafood, and then supplementing some collagen hydrolysate. Or if you're about the gourmet life, then you can do your roasts and your slow cooked meats and, and what have you, all, all those types of options. So it's just, yeah, really important to make sure that you're, you're getting adequate amounts of protein, especially if you have a fatty liver. Yeah. And just real quick, I know you're joking about the gourmet life. I mean, in reality, those foods are much cheaper compared to something like steaks or or chicken breasts a lot of time, a lot of times, um, depending on the quality, of course. And yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people prefer them. And I, some people have some issues with their response to things like collagen and gelatin, in which case, again, I think getting it directly from the food is, is ideal. So yeah, that's definitely true. So moving on from protein, we've talked a lot about uh, fats, specifically PUFA, but we've also talked about saturated fats. I mean, because of the production of them and their conversion to the monounsaturated fats. I mean, that's been a huge theme here when we're talking about fatty liver, which obviously has a lot to do with fat. So when it comes to diet, I think there are some, you know, the, the obvious piece here would be avoiding the polyunsaturated fats, reducing the polyunsaturated fats in your diet. We talked extensively about how these drive and amplify inflammation. They inhibit respiration, which is going to drive the production of fat in the liver. Uh, they reduce the ability to export the fat. They're you know, all around causing a lot of issues for the liver and driving that pathology deeper and deeper by driving the oxidative stress and inflammation. So reducing those is going to be the simplest thing. We've talked about this you know, more in the past. I'll link to those episodes as a real quick recap. This is the vegetable oils, nuts and seeds, fatty fish, uh, uh, fat from pork or, or chicken that's not pastured so whether it's chicken thighs or, or bacon or something like that if it's not pastured it's going to be high in PUFA so those would all be uh, fats to reduce and so in contrast to the polyunsaturated fats we want to be favoring the saturated and monounsaturated fats 
we talked in the last few episodes about how protected the saturated saturated fats are against basically the effects of the polyunsaturated fats, especially in terms of, of liver injury and damage. So that's especially noteworthy. We talked about the protective effects of saturated fats in terms of endotoxin, also obviously very noteworthy. So these would be the fats that we want to focus on, and then the monounsaturated fats as well. Both of these are extremely stable. They aren't prone to oxidation like the polyunsaturated fats. Again, I'll link to previous episodes talking about those. And then just real quick, as far as foods go, this comes back to dairy and meat. Uh, that's you know meat that's either chicken or pork that's raised well, or any sort of ruminant animal like beef, or bison, goat, lamb, um, and then low-fat seafood, which is just going to be low in PUFA. So that's going to be the main sources as well as things like coconut oil, uh, palm oil, and uh, beef tallow, things like that. So those would be the main sources we want to focus on uh, just big picture wise. And then we'll talk about the specifics as far as saturated versus monounsaturated in the context of fatty liver. Yeah. So as far as at least it's, it's kind of a contextual deal, right? So while you're currently having a fatty liver, while you're currently in the state of fatty liver, perhaps adjusting towards a more monounsaturated fat ratio so higher monounsaturated fat to saturated fat would be helpful to like relieve the liver a little bit so that the liver if it is having a bottleneck at its ability to take those fats and create turn them into or put them into vldl and then to export them yeah to export them but put them in vldl and then export them out of the liver uh it may be better or may be helpful for a period of time to focus more in on the monounsaturated fatty acids rather than saturated. It doesn't mean you have to go zero saturated fatty acids, of but course. it's more like just the increasing the ratio towards mono. Um, I would still limit polyunsaturated fatty acids as much as, as, much as possible. Um, so that would be the sources for those could be something like a high quality extra virgin olive oil, a macadamia nut oil, macadamia nuts, Beef tallow and cocoa butter actually have a decent amount of monounsaturated fatty acids. So if you made a mixture of like a uh, like if you were going to cook with or if you were going to put on your food, like you cooked your food with some beef tallow and then you added a little bit of macadamia oil after, you would actually have a very high monounsaturated fatty acid to saturated fatty acid ratio. So you could do something like that. And mm. it's just until the liver clears out a little bit and it has an easier time processing saturated fatty acids just because there is that nuance where they can be a little bit more difficult to process initially especially in a pathological state so with fats that would be the deal and again the monounsaturated fats aren't really at risk for the peroxidative damage and a lot of in studies with olive oil it actually finds it being protective in some of the the inflammatory states with the liver whereas your corn oil and your fish oil definitely aren't um and then as far as medium chain fats go with like a coconut oil, those those types of fats would be something that are hit or miss. And some people can be really helpful because it can provide a quick source of energy. But in other people, it may it could make the situation worse for them by irritating the intestine or by by adjusting the processing of the liver. So those are a little bit more hit or miss. Some and sun studies definitely show benefit, whereas others it depends on it depends on the context. So that's what I would say for um, for fats. That would that would be my initial choice. Yeah. And just to mention as well, another potential reason to decrease the saturated fats a little bit does come back to the digestion, where if somebody is struggling with fatty liver 
and you know their liver is not functioning as well, their bile production might be impaired, their bile release might be impaired, there might be some gallbladder issues, and so that can make it more difficult to digest these fats as well. So that would be another consideration. Yeah. So the 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 oil nature, the the fact that the monounsaturated fats are more liquid means mm-hmm. they're a little they can be a little bit easier on digestion. Uh, whereas the longer chain saturated fats like stearic acid or, or or fats higher, even having more carbons than that could be a little bit more difficult to digest. So focusing on the monounsaturated could be helpful in that context as well. Yeah, it's definitely, a, uh, I, that's something, something I've experienced as not having a gallbladder. I feel like I can digest some of the monounsaturated fats a little bit easier. Um, yeah, just something to put out there. Yeah. Yeah. And, and just as far as the amount of fat goes, I mean, we talked about why low fat is not just this clear answer here uh, or low saturated fat, right? Like saturated fat is not the cause of fatty liver. If somebody is changing their foods in a way that is supporting their metabolism, they're using certain supplements that, are, that we'll discuss and they're still, as you mentioned, like they're still struggling or if they just want maybe a little bit of extra push it might be helpful to reduce the saturated fats a bit it might be helpful to reduce fats overall a bit yeah again these are not first strategies from from my view i i would definitely work on adjusting the types of foods first and foremost and maybe using some of the supplements we'll discuss prior to doing this because you have drawbacks to decreased fat uh, intake yeah. so 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 yeah that that would be kind of like an order, order of operations for me it is something i would consider if somebody is still struggling with the fatty liver situation, I would consider dropping the saturated fat down a bit or dropping fat down a bit as a whole. Uh, you know, sometimes we talk about like a 30 to 40% fat, maybe it'll be going down to closer to 20% fat, uh, as far as total calories in the diet, again, all depending on the individual situation and what, you know, what that individual's experiencing. Yep. And I've actually just as a personal experience, I've, I've worked with people who have had fatty liver and I've had people just switch over to a more monounsaturated fat content in the diet and have their symptoms and presentation of fatty liver dissipate by making some of the, the adjustments we're talking about here, making sure you're having adequate protein, taking out for some, for some people it's actually having foods that this individual kind of had a negative response or uh, a, a, like kind of an allergic response to dairy. So eliminating mm-hmm. dairy and then adjusting the fats to be more monounsaturated actually help to clear out the liver without having to drastically drop, drop the fat content. If anything, the total amount of calories, once we drop dairy and the liver started to heal a little bit increased over time. So, and that's one of the drawbacks of dropping fat really low is that you actually, you, it's hard to hit caloric intake. If you, I mean, 20% isn't too low, but some people want to talk about like really low fat diets. And then it makes it very difficult to actually meet the number, the amount of calories you need and to feel satiated with your diet. So, uh, yeah, it's, it, it, there's a spectrum of things that you're going to do. Uh, it, there's a, there's a spectrum of things to handle and like, there's an order in which to try things. So maybe you just take out some sort of irritating factor. You get rid of poly, uh, as much polyunsaturated fats as possible. You move towards a higher protein diet, more nutrient dense, and you can tolerate some, some of the saturated fats, no problem. Or if you're still having a little bit of issue, then you can move to more monounsaturated fats. And if you're still having some of the issue, you can lower your monounsaturated fat intake and still keep like the proportion of saturated, uh, the proportion of monounsaturated fats high. So you're at like 20% fat diet with 
with a larger proportion of, of that fat being monounsaturated. So there's there's a gradation of things to try and to move through before you can just go like full boat and going full boat all the way low fat, mostly monounsaturated. Like there's, you may feel that you may actually feel worse having the fat so low. So again, it's not always that like going the full way is always all the way better. Like in some cases, it, for some people, it may be better to like find that medium and what works for them. So we're trying to give a spectrum of options here. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And and with that being said, I've seen people resolve severe fatty liver without taking out dairy, without taking out saturated fats, without adjusting the fat content even at all as a whole, uh, probably even with increasing it. So yeah, it's, as you mentioned, it's a spectrum, you got to work through it and and pick out again lows taking fruit and and what what sort of factors seem to be the most uh causing the biggest issue and you mentioned high protein i just wanted to clarify that that doesn't necessarily mean a high protein diet just higher than what somebody might have been doing prior low protein diets especially in women and and i've seen it to be pretty common in people who have fatty liver uh or just easy to come by it's a lot of people who aren't focusing on getting enough protein don't happen to get enough maybe they're only getting 50 to 60 grams a day so Higher meaning just adequate, not necessarily a high protein diet where you're also having low fat, low carb. That would be not a good idea, uh, in short. Yeah. Yeah. That's and when I say higher, I'm talking about in our range. So when we have 0.6 grams to 0.8 grams per pound of body weight per day, I'm saying moving towards the 0.8 grams per pound of body weight per day part of the range and sitting there. Whenever I have somebody who comes to me with fatty liver, that is the first thing that I'm going to do is put, make sure that protein intake is high, high in that range. So towards the 0.8 and make sure that it's eaten on a consistent basis. And it's coming from animal protein sources that are also nutrient dense. That's like number one thing to, to hit right there is that protein aspect. And that's why we covered it first. Um, and that can include using collagen protein, but it really, the, that high pro that, that protein amount, I think is very helpful for people. A lot of people who I've who have come to me with fatty liver were actually under eating on a regular basis mm-hmm. because the liver impairment was impairing appetite to some extent. And in my experience, and then they were also the fat choices and protein choices that they're eating. Like there was not eating enough protein on a regular basis. And then they had like their, even though their diet was low in total calories, the proportion of fats they were eating was higher in the polyunsaturated fatty acids. So mm-hmm. even if like some of these people were eating only, you know, 50 grams of fat a day, but they still had like 15 of those 50 grams of fat being polyunsaturated fatty acids, or even some of them only had like eight grams of fat being from polyunsaturated fatty acids, but that's still a relatively high proportion compared to what's possible. So if you're making a switch and you're going to, for example, someone like myself will eat 130 grams of fat a day sometimes 140 grams of fat a day, but I'll keep my polyunsaturated fat intake at like eight grams. That's a very different equation than having 50 grams of fat a day with eight grams of that being in polyunsaturated fat. And then also only eating like 60 grams of protein a day mm-hmm. and then filling in the rest with a whole bunch of grains and fibers and carbs and then coming and having like liver issues and allergies and gut issues and all this type of stuff. The, the, those paradigms, even though the total amount of polyunsaturated fat may have been the same, there's like other, there's a whole bunch of other factors. So the first thing is always make sure there's enough protein. That's why I covered it first. And then the fats is a gradation approach, depending on where you're coming from. You know, you could, 
if you're coming because some people will be coming from a carnivore diet and they'll be eating, you know, a really, really high protein diet, like 300 grams of protein a day. And they'll be having maybe 80 to 100 grams of fat a day and their liver will still be blown up. And it's related to other issues, whether that's glucocorticoid signaling, microbiome issues, and then nutrient deficiencies or, or in excess protein issues, things like that causing issues at the liver that may not necessarily like it's again, like it's, there's, it depends on the different context, but we're trying to give, I guess, like guidelines of like ways to go about it. So get your protein intake around this range and then fats, this would be the stepwise approach to adjust from there. Yeah. And in that low carb case, the carnivore case, they're probably also suffering from carbohydrate deficiencies. So yeah. Yeah. So we talked about this prior about how perhaps surprisingly, most of the fat in the fatty liver is coming from the body's own fat tissue. So the best way to cause the release of your own fat is to drive stress and to be in the fat burning state where you're kind of constantly cycling through your fat stores, fat going in, fat going out. And so a a low carb diet is a good way to do that and drive that. And increasing carbohydrates is the most effective way to drop those stress hormones down and reduce the release of the free fatty acids. So that's incredibly important, getting enough carbohydrates and, you know, enough to suppress stress. We've talked about this uh, plenty of times in the past, so I'll link to those different episodes. And one thing that is especially important to highlight when it comes to, well, there's two important things to highlight when it comes to fatty liver. First one has to do with endotoxin, which we've talked extensively about how huge of an issue that is in fatty liver disease. And generally, the production of endotoxin is going to be driven by carbohydrates that are not well digested. And so because of that, it's extremely important to make sure that you're uh, focusing mostly on the easily digested carbohydrates and paying attention to which ones you digest well or don't digest well, and then also addressing the cause of that maldigestion, So, which tends to be microbial in nature. It tends to be bacterial overgrowth, fungal overgrowth, or imbalances. So again, simple, like just keeping it simple here, things like ripe fruits, juices, honey, maple syrup, uh, cooked roots and tubers, sweet potatoes, potatoes, things like that. Those are all going to be the easiest to digest. And you can dial in more specifically from there. You might not, you know, an individual might not do as well with starches. Uh, They might not be able to break down those complex chains of glucose, but maybe just the fruit juice is fine or just ripe fruits are fine. So it's a matter of first just making sure that you're eating a diet, in this case, eating specific carbohydrates that you digest well and aren't driving that endotoxin production. And then secondary to that would be addressing the the issue, the microbial issue that's driving that, which we'll talk about in a moment, because that's going to be more supplement-based. I mean, eating the easily digestible carbohydrates will actually help to rebalance your microbiome as well between the polyphenols in there and and also just supporting things metabolically and reducing the feeding of those harmful bacteria. So you know, it's a multifactorial piece, but that's an incredibly important one. And then the other one I would mention is is on the fructose side, where for the most part, I would say that this is something kind of like the saturated fats, where this is more of a secondary piece, where if you are already doing a lot of the things, quote unquote, right, where you've already done a lot of things to adjust your diet to support your metabolism and support your liver health, and you've used some of these supplements and you're still struggling, it might help to decrease the fructose intake a little bit and see if that helps just because there might be some other factors that are inhibiting your liver's uh, capacity to oxidize it or convert it to glycogen 
And so during that time, it could be helpful to have a little bit less uh, input, a little, a little bit less fuel there. Again, with the acknowledgement that this is not actually solving the issue. This would just be a way to prevent it from getting worse in the short term only if necessary. I haven't ever found this to be necessary in people who have fatty liver. That being said, uh, that doesn't mean that it never would be. Uh, but yeah, something to consider again, I would definitely not be looking at that any anytime early on in, in quote unquote treatment of the issue. Yeah, I mean, my one thing I would say is that I tend to remove honey for people when when I first start with with any type of fatty liver or any type of um, bloating or any type of indication of a liver issue, just because the free fructose can cause issue for people in that state. So my preference is always for uh, fruit juices that or any types of fruits and dried fruits that are low in FODMAPs and then are also have one-to-one glucose to fructose ratios so that those sugars are entirely absorbed for the most part higher up in the, in the small intestine and they don't reach for if you have any type of microbial imbalance. And the microbial imbalance may not necessarily have developed first with the situation the liver impairment may have led to the microbial imbalance or they kind of like, it's kind of cyclical. It's kind of hard to know the chicken or the egg with those. Mm -hmm. And it can depend on each individual's context. They got some type of liver impairment from eating foods over a period of time, led to dysbiosis, dysbiosis strengthened the process and just kind of went from there. So what I tend to push people towards at least to experiment with when, when coming to me with fatty liver, any type of liver or digestive impairment is going to be those one-to-one, uh, glucose to fructose and then like a safe starch source, the ones that you mentioned it's, and it's, it's usually going to be like a, like a white potato or maybe a plantain or a banana, or for some people, white rice may be better, or sometimes it could be cassava or yams. It really depends on what you're tolerating. And that's going to come with experimentation because some people tolerate yams fine, whereas some people just blows them up. They're going to get a lot of gas. So there's, mm-hmm. Those all really depend. The most important point with the carbohydrate sources is that they have the polyphenols present because that'll that'll modulate the microbiome and it'll allow it'll protect you from some of the negative effects of the endotoxemia. And it also they have a protective effect on the liver directly. Oxidative stress is a huge problem inside fatty liver disease, as we talked about. And the polyphenols actually can decrease that oxidative stress and restore proper energy metabolism not only by blocking some of the effects of endotoxin, but also like protecting the liver cells directly, like having an effect on the cells directly. And then making sure that those carbohydrate sources are nutrient dense carbohydrate sources. They have vitamins and they have minerals and that the most nutrient dense sources that are the easily, most easily digested are going to be all those sources I just mentioned. Grains, beans, not, not great sources, not, not really nutrient dense to a large extent especially digestible nutrient dense, and then also come with a whole bunch of other factors that can worsen dysbiosis and, or increase negative symptoms in these states. So ideally it'd be moving towards those more easily digestible sources. And we also, we want these digestible sources so that we can start to, with the carbs, we can start to move towards more carbohydrate metabolism and less oxidation or over oxidation of fatty acids. And we also want to lower that cortisol, that glucocorticoid signaling that we talked about in fatty liver, which gets upregulated. So for carbohydrates, that's generally how I go about things. Now, one thing I want to preface here too, is that as, as you mentioned, Jay, is that if you are still having issues with fructose or whatnot, I actually had a client who at one point was dealing with some liver stuff and they, um, 
they initially didn't tolerate fructose from, or they didn't tolerate fruits and fruit juice very well at the start. And that's because when they came to me, they specifically had liver issues going on. Like all the symptom, the symptom profile indicated liver issues. I can't make a diagnosis, but I can sit there and say, I have right upper quadrantine. I have bloating. I have fatigue. My stools are this or that. And then, you know, I'm getting these histamine reactions. For me, first thing is gut liver right there. That's like automatic gut liver. What's going on with that? Those are two different things, by the way. This is not an organ. This is not a new organ. Your gut liver. <laughs> this is your gut and liver issues. Yeah. They're, they're just so like, you can't, you don't have one issue without the other. Like they're always together. That's why I say that. Like it's the, there's the connection between them is so strong that there's no way that you have a, a gut issue and you don't have something going on at the liver and you don't, if you have a liver issue, you don't have something going on at the gut. It's your gut liver axis. Yes. <laughs> just, gut, for sure is gut liver. <laughs> your gut liver. Yeah, I know. I know. Yeah. I, no, just like you have the, this gut skin axis and the gut brain axis and this, I, I mean, every, it's all directly interrelated. I'm not saying that there's not value in, in pointing out the connection between the liver and the gut, but I'm just saying you can, drive those axes between all the different organ systems it's kind of yeah. it's kind of like like it, again if you're just using it as a name to talk about the relationship between the different organ systems it's fine but it's just kind of a funny way to reduce this complex system that all works together to oh you just happen to have a relationship between these two organ systems but not there's not a skin kidney axis right there, there's no way that could exist uh, so no it's it just for me, it's just it's easy, it's a categorization because you always see those like yeah. those are the main. Yeah. If you have these symptom profiles, like you can have like most people who have gut symptoms or have some, or have like serious liver symptoms, wind up getting things like rashes or hives or some type or maybe acne or or other types of skin symptoms. And then they also can will get hormonal symptoms like weight gain here, water holding here. So like everything is is all entirely related. But those are yeah. the areas that I'm going to specifically target in on to address the to, to help basically remove the blocks so I can get metabolism working in the right place. But with this particular individual, mm-hmm. at first, they didn't tolerate juices and, and fruit well. And that was fine because what we did was we moved to starches and what for a while they tolerated starches. And then over the period of a couple of weeks, they try to reintroduce juices again. And then they found out that they like juice and fruit better than the starches because their liver had cleared whatever the issue was going on and their ability to process the fructose was, was way better. So the problem is really the state. The state is the problem as pretty much with everything. And it's like, how are you manipulating what's going on with that state? And then what are you throwing on? To, is your, if you're in a healthy state, you can process fructose from fruit and juices and stuff fine. Whereas if you have a fatty liver state, you may have an issue for a period of time just because you have that backlog and overload. So it was just, it was, again, it was just like, let's just decrease those fruits, the fructose content for a period of time. And then we can reintroduce it later on once we get the signs that the liver and gut have calmed down a little bit. And that's exactly what we did. And then it essentially just, um, it dissipated it. Now the, this individual's tolerating uh, juices and fruit just fine. So yeah, there's, that's the importance of context because in the studies too, I don't think they talk about the context. They want to look for like one particular factor. And it's mm-hmm. like, yes, you have, you're giving rats a 60% fructose diet, which causes not only rank nutrient deficiencies, but microbiome imbalances. And then you want to turn around and say, oh, it's fructose. It's like, 
No, it's fructose <laughs> on top of microbial imbalance, on top of rank nutrient deficiencies, on top of a fatty liver, which is like, they're all synergizing together. It's not, it's never going to be one factor, even if you're just feeding this one thing. So, and again, that fructose is still entirely different from getting it from like a fruit juice. Like if you put in a pineapple juice versus a, of 60%, if you put in a 60% pineapple juice diet versus a 60% high fructose diet, you're, it's going to be a world of a difference of response. So just things to keep in mind. Absolutely. Yeah. And I did want to mention, so you mentioned honey as being something that you often take out. I've also seen situations where somebody has some very noteworthy symptoms in relation to digestion and virtually any type of carbohydrate will trigger them, but honey will be totally fine. And that's maybe one of the very few uh, foods that they can digest without an issue and it won't drive endotoxin production or anything. So again, just saying that it's all individual. Some people might do better with, with, without honey due to the amount of fructose in there. Um, but for other people, it, it might be totally yeah. fine. Again, it, it just variable. And, and as you're saying, there might be a place for starting with more on the starches. Again, it's, these are all things that, that we would work to sort out depending on symptoms and how somebody responds, which is a huge part of it when we're talking about these dietary things, these dietary strategies is we're keeping the larger context in mind of what's driving the pathology and how we can best oppose it. And then within that, you're considering how you respond to making certain changes and adjustments and then adjusting accordingly. I mean, that's that's what most of it comes down to, I guess, after yeah. you have those those foundational pieces in place or the foundational understanding in place of what's driving the problem. Yeah, that's that, that's the thing, though, because it's always there's always nuance. And that's yeah. why it's hard to be ever be a guru about something because there's so much nuance involved with everything that like a lot of times somebody will ask people, why is this going on? And it's like, I can give you a hypothesis based on what I understand currently as to why something's going on. But the only way we're going to know like what intervention is going to work for you is we're going to just have to try it. And we're going to have to put it in an experiment intelligently, hypothesize intelligently about what that specific issue is and what that specific cause is. So yeah, it's, it's always going to be the, this nuanced approach. It's always going to be a, an organic evolving approach and being open to trying different strategies within the context of certain principles, you know, based on these understandings. And so like, for example, a great example, of this is the fructose and honey situation. So like, even when you look at the studies, people, some people can only tolerate five grams of five free grams of fructose in excess of glucose at a meal, whereas others can go up to 50 or hundred. So maybe the individual you were working with was more in that 50 grams of free fructose in excess of glucose glucose range. So the amount of honey they were eating in that in that meal wasn't enough to push them over their saturation point for their intestine. Whereas someone like myself, it's like if I have, you know, 10 grams more fructose, like I'm going to have a problem. So it's that's where that nuance comes in and the flexibility to be like, okay, what are we seeing in your symptoms and how are we going to address it from there? And so like, that's something I think would, is helpful for people to understand when they, even when they're like, when they're working with their own situation and trying to figure it out is really looking at what, like, what is my perception of my experience? What, like, it's really raise, perceive, think, act, right? So like, what am I experiencing? What am I perceiving? And then thinking about it from there and then doing an, ex performing an experiment and seeing how you respond from it rather than having the ideology first, 
ignoring the perception and then trying to perform the experiment. You have to go off of really how you're feeling and what's going on with you. Yeah, definitely. And I do want to say, just to add in with the with the honey portion, there is more free fructose than than free glucose. It's about 7% more. So just to put that in context, I know we've done this before. It would take almost 100 grams of honey to get... I mean, if you took 100 grams of honey, of carbohydrate from honey, which is more than 100 grams of honey, you would end up with 7 grams more of free fructose than free glucose. So even if somebody is on the low end of that fructose digestion spectrum, it would still take a ton of honey to get there. Uh, and there are other carbohydrates in the honey that are more glucose based. So it ends up being similar depending on the digestion and all of that, but there are other components of the honey too, that can be harder to digest. So, and it can vary between honey. So there's a lot of factors here, uh, but yeah, it's something to consider just like a lot of the other foods, as far as certain unique characteristics about them that can make them a little tougher, a little easier. Uh, there was an episode where we dug into a lot of the specifics of different types of carbohydrates. So I'll, I'll link back to that one. Yeah. And I think that the fructose to glucose ratio of honeys adjust by honeys as well. Sure. Yeah. So you can have some that are higher than others. Cause I know some people will tolerate some, like when, with my experience, I was tolerating clover honeys fine, but I wasn't tolerating other honeys. And so like, it really depends. And like my symptomatology from the honeys were legitimately like, like what I have, if I have other FODMAPs, bloating, gas, um, Sometimes depending on the amount, like a, like a diarrhea or anything like that. So again, it, this is it, that's why it's important to figure out, you know, what's working for you and, mm-hmm. and, yeah. and go from there. Yeah. Yeah. And so in that case, it could be other, uh, carbohydrates that are hard to digest from the honey it might not even have been the fructose for you, even in the different types, but it's hard to know, you know? Yeah. It's, it, it comes down to experimenting. Right. Yeah. Definitely. And, and there's a couple other things I think that are important to keep in mind when it comes to carbohydrates. Also, one thing that you said I wanted to come back to, you were saying it's hard to be a guru because we were talking about the importance of experimentation and individuality. And I just want to clarify, you weren't saying that we're trying to be gurus, but rather just that the idea of being somebody who knows exactly what will work and what won't in every situation is virtually impossible and shouldn't be something that you aspire to, but rather just understanding the principles so that you can apply them to different situations and then see what the outcomes are and adjust accordingly because there is no way to to part of the you know of course the more experience you have with different sets of of uh, expressions of of symptoms and things the easier it is to navigate but there is so much individuality and so much uniqueness between even as you said different types of honey for example that experimentation becomes a huge a huge piece of the puzzle yeah yeah i definitely it and everything everything we do with people i think is largely like it's preference too as like this is an experiment yeah so we're we're going to we're going to see how this goes based on this hypothesis and then adjust accordingly exactly and then continually adjust yep yeah yeah there's a couple other things i wanted to mention as far as carbohydrates i think you you mentioned it but i just wanted to say so part of the reason why they're so helpful in decreasing the stress hormones and supporting the pro-metabolic hormones. And as you mentioned, reducing glucocorticoids is huge when it comes to liver pathology. We talked about that. We'll talk a little bit about the importance of supporting thyroid activity and other hormonal, uh, pro-metabolic hormonal activity. So they do all that. And the reason why they do that, and again, we've talked about this in the past, I'll link to those articles and uh, the articles I wrote about it in the episodes where we discussed it, is that uh, carbohydrates are very 
they are favorable for supporting the rate of mitochondrial respiration. They increase the rate of energy production compared to fatty acids. And because of that, if you're trying to, for example, reduce fat production at the liver, kind of like an overload, quote, quote unquote, even though it's, it's not caused by the excess substrate, uh, carbohydrates are essential for that. If, you, if you're trying to run on fats, you'll end up, quote unquote, burning through much less fuel, much less substrate than if you're running on carbohydrates. So that's really what a, a huge piece of this comes down to as well outside of the gut is driving mitochondrial respiration, driving energy production at a faster and more efficient rate that allows for more substrate to be converted to ATP with less oxidative stress, which the oxidative stress slows down that, that energy production. So that, that's just huge, a huge piece there. The other thing that you had mentioned was the polyphenols, which have effects in protecting against endotoxin. They have effects in reducing the type of bacteria that are going to produce endotoxin and other toxins and uh, you know bacterial agents or fungal agents. So they have those kind of antimicrobial or bacteriostatic effects, and they preferentially support certain microbial populations. And they also, certain uh, polyphenols also have direct anti-inflammatory and, and antioxidative stress effects, antioxidant effects. Uh, again, particular ones do. And, and we talked about that piece of the pathology in liver disease or fatty liver disease. So they are also all important from, from then, that standpoint as well. Yep. So, I mean, besides the polyphenols that you would get from the carbohydrate sources that you mentioned, they'd also come with large amounts of vitamin C and they also can come with large amounts of minerals. Those minerals will also come from the protein sources that we mentioned, minerals being zinc, copper, iron, and, and you know, adequate amounts, uh, manganese. All these are important for antioxidant function as well. The minerals specifically take part in some of the important enzymes. We mentioned these in other episodes, superoxide dismutase, catalase, uh, glutathione peroxidase. These enzymes help with the antioxidation function at the liver cells. So if you're having oxidative stress, you can start to deplete these minerals in these pathologic states. So having adequate amounts of those extremely important. That's where you hear like Ray's famous uh, quotes on, are you eating enough, like getting enough oysters or having your weekly liver or something like that is to replace those minerals. Uh, the muscles are also really high in manganese, which you can actually be kind of hard to get in some, uh, on some parts of the diet or depending on how you set up the diet and pineapple juice will also be high in manganese. So, and grapes and uh, maple syrup, right? Yeah. So basically those would optimizing for these foods. And essentially what I would say is really, I would put your diet into chronometer so you can see what micronutrients mm -hmm. you're getting on a regular basis. And then also you could see your macronutrients. So you could see if you're hitting those protein targets that we talked about, and then you can adjust your, your carbs and your fats and you can see, you know, your fatty acid ratio. So how much monounsaturated fats am I eating versus saturated? What's my polyunsaturated fatty acid content? And once you, it, this is not something you do forever, but it's once you solidify a diet for yourself, the chronometer can serve as a general template and let you know that you're hitting all your, or most of your micros. Some of them are hard to, are hard to hit. Like vitamin E can be difficult from diet. If you're eating a lot of low polyunsaturated foods, cause it tends to come with those. Um, so yeah, I, I would, I would plug those in. And then as far as another, other components that are helpful from some of the fruits is, is what I mentioned before is vitamin C, which is actually a cofactor or required for proper carnitine, carnitine, palmitoyl oil, transferase one function. So that's the, the protein that will, or the enzyme that'll 
transport fats into the mitochondria to be oxidized. So it's helpful in the state where you're trying to oxidize the liver is oxidizing some of these excess fats. And it also helps with the production of bile acids. So having adequate adequate um, vitamin C is important, basically adequate nutrients in general. And that's going to come from all of these sources that we mentioned. If you plug in a specific diet, you basically will see that you can hit almost all of your micronutrients, uh, whether that's vitamins and minerals and then in and macronutrients with these foods, like you'll be you'll be in like and doing a huge service for yourself in general. And it's it's quite easy. It's something you could do like right now. Like while you're on this podcast, look up chronometer, you can start plugging in the things that we talked about um and and start making those changes. So yeah, that we're gonna we'll we're gonna dive more into some of the specific supplements you can use. But I would say the first strategy would always be to try and get this stuff from from food and then use the supplements after or on t- or on top of um what you're getting from food. That's kind of the best way to go. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh I think those are all important pieces. The one last thing I wanted to mention when it comes to non-alcoholic fatty liver disease is alcohol. So we talked about how alcoholic liver disease and non-alcoholic liver disease are really not all that different. It's just that alcohol is incredibly effective at driving the pathology that we see in fatty liver disease. So you can attribute in somebody who's drinking a lot of alcohol, you can attribute those effects largely to the alcohol. However, in somebody who is not uh, drinking a lot of alcohol is drinking, let's say a moderate amount or less than that, but is still dealing with fatty liver disease, I would still, and this is going to be a typical, even conventional recommendation as well to to basically avoid alcohol. And I think it's just worth emphasizing. We, we talked about how alcohol drives this, this pathology. It, it depletes ATP. It depletes the NAD to NADH ratio or decreases the NAD to NADH ratio, driving inhibited respiration, driving oxidative stress, driving fat accumulation. Uh, and on from there, you know, impairing the ability to depleting B release vitamins, fat, depleting B vitamins. Yep, absolutely. So the short piece there is to minimize alcohol intake. It it makes a huge difference for liver health. And so I just feel like that should be mentioned. Uh, if somebody is to drink alcohol, we mentioned this before, fructose is effective at protecting against the effects of alcohol and at increasing the clearance of the alcohol from the liver so that is at least again protective but uh from the fatty liver disease standpoint or just liver health standpoint it still would not you know alcohol is still not ideal yeah so it'd be like having like your having mixing your vodka with some pineapple juice would be a good idea yeah or orange juice yeah or orange juice or grape juice or whatever it is um what I actually have people do a lot if they really like red wine, I'll just say, what if you tried just having some grape juice at night with your dinner instead of a glass of red wine? Some <laughs> yeah. people like it. Some people say it's not the same. Um, that's tangential. But another thing I think is important is if any number one, the ultimate goal would be to stop drinking altogether. <laughs> but, yeah. you know, in casual situations, whatever it's going to be social, like I get it. It's important for for those circumstances. So, you know having it mixed with some type of fruit juice. And then also if you had something like chocolate available while you were having it, the polyphenol, as long as you tolerate chocolate, the polyphenols and the fats in the chocolate are actually protective against the damage from the alcohol. So that could be helpful. And then making sure that you have adequate, like 
you know, people having their hangovers and whatnot, having adequate amounts of B vitamins can help with the processing of the alcohol, making sure you're having the adequate uh, protein and it has, in, as Jay said, adequate fructose from fruit juice, carbohydrates in general can all be very helpful to process the alcohol while minimizing the damage that can occur from it. And so, you know, I'm sure you've seen this too. Like I've had people like, I'm still going to have my drink and it's like, that's completely fine. I'm not going to fight with you over your drink. How are we going to minimize the damage from that drink? Like what's the next best strategy? And it's the same thing, I guess, you know, in, in general with, with these pathologies, the goal is to avoid all of the things that are making it worse. So that's going to be your fast food. That's going to be your polyunsaturated fats. That's going to be your alcohol. That's going to be any type of, you know, toxic ingredient at, as an additive into your industrial food, whether your chips or whatever that is. And like it, the goal is to first stop doing harm. So that's removing all of those things. And then the, the, what you would do is you would replace them with these options that we placed here that not only don't do harm, they reverse that harm because they provide nutrients because they, and that's macro and micronutrients, protein, carbs, fat, vitamins, minerals. They're providing all of those things. And they're not, they're also not causing microbial imbalances, all this type of stuff. That's, that's essentially what the strategy is. And then the supplements are like additive or synergistic on top of that. But the first strategy is always always stop doing harm and then replace with things that are going to reverse that. And that's why we were focusing on diet first, because I think in a lot of circumstances, like you may, you, it, I think it's very likely that you can reverse your fatty liver without having to really touch a supplement. You can probably do it entirely through diet. Supplements may just speed up the process, um, help things along into a better state and allow you to get where you want to be faster. But in most of these cases that I've seen and people that I work with, that initial beneficial period, like within the first two weeks of change, if you really change things around, change things around and make the effort, you're going to feel better right away. Mm -hmm. It's just getting rid of like some of the more ingrained damage and pathways can take a little bit more time. And the biggest barrier in my experience to this is commitment to like maintaining this and at maintaining a newer paradigm, making that change and accepting this is like, it's not just a diet you're doing to get rid of your fatty liver. It's like, this is more of the new lifestyle that you're adopting for yourself. That's, those are, I think more of the hurdles that I see. Um, yeah, go, go ahead. I know you have some things you want to add to that. <laughs> no, I, I, I agree with, with all that. The only thing I wanted to, uh, add was in relation to the alcohol, you were talking about these protective factors. And it's funny that things like fructose and saturated fats, which are blamed for causing fatty liver disease, happen to be the things that are most effective at protecting against alcoholic liver injury, and then also polyphenols, which those are less argued over, but yes, those help as well. So yeah, all good things to consider. And I think, as you mentioned, the diet piece here is huge. Lifestyle as well, which we'll get into as far as stress and exercise too, uh, and as you said, supplements too, but the this is these are the foundational things that are going to matter especially in the long run more than anything else and you and as much as the supplements can help they can't out uh, perform or, or reverse a bad diet you know this is a fundamental piece that more or less has to be there in some you know more it, it has to be there you can't you can't um make up for a poor diet with supplements that's what i'm trying to get at yeah and sometimes sometimes taking the supplement on top of a poor diet can actually make things a little worse for you because oh, yeah. the, like if you're going to use thyroid or you and you have B vitamin deficiencies, or you're going to throw B vitamins onto a situation. You don't have adequate carbohydrates. 
all that can make things worse. So it's diet and then subs. That's, I mean, and that's the process I'll generally go to. And I think it's kind of the same on your end until, um, unless there's like some like severe issue. Yeah. Yeah. Diet and other lifestyle factors. And yeah. And lifestyle. Yeah. It's a complex loop, right? I mean, supplements can be helped because as you mentioned, there are pieces here that are not just as simple as just change your diet. You know, there's a lot of impediments that can go on and obstacles and sometimes supplements can help you get to a place where adjusting the lifestyle is easier. So I, I don't like to to put it also as as always diet first or or supplements bad or anything like that. They're obviously incredibly helpful. It's just that you at least have, you know, in order to get long term to where you need to be, checking the, the box for diet is, is a necessary one. Checking the box for supplements is not necessarily a necessary one. That's how I would think of it. All right. I hope you enjoyed that episode. We'll be wrapping up this series in the following episode in part eight, where we'll discuss supplements to help reverse fatty liver disease, as well as the impact of exercise and stress on fatty liver disease. If you did enjoy today's episode, then please leave a like or comment if you're watching on YouTube. And if you're listening elsewhere, please leave a review or five-star rating on iTunes. All of those things really do a lot to help support the podcast and are very much appreciated. To check out the show notes for today's episode, you can head over to jfeldmanwellness.com slash podcast. You can take a look at the studies and articles and anything else that we referenced throughout today's episode. And if you are dealing with any of the symptoms or chronic health issues that we've been referring to throughout this series or throughout today's episode, whether that's fatty liver or insulin resistance or related chronic health issues like diabetes or heart disease, or if that's other low energy symptoms, whether that's chronic fatigue or chronic cravings and hunger or joint pain, or maybe that's weight gain or various digestive symptoms like bloating or slow motility or uh, any other digestive inflammation, maybe that's brain fog or poor sleep or insomnia, maybe that's hormonal imbalances or various other low energy symptoms or chronic health issues. If you are dealing with any of those symptoms or chronic health issues, then head over to jfeldmanwellness.com energy where you can sign up for a free energy balance mini course where I'll explain how these different symptoms and conditions are really caused by a lack of energy and I'll also walk you through the main things that you can do from a diet and lifestyle perspective to maximize your cellular energy and resolve these symptoms and conditions. So to sign up for that free energy balance mini course, head over to jfeldmanwellness.com energy. And with that, I'll see you in the next episode.